Jo Chandler is one of our top writers and reporters on science. She's won a Eureka Prize for journalism and appeared many times in ABC programmes. She specialises in being out there where lots is happening, be it in Antarctica or in the programme today in the heat of Papua New Guinea. That's where science is also proving vital for nature and survival. Although PNG is abundant with food sources, we're not prepared for difficult times. Mm. I'm on the road running east out of Goroka in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Like so many of this country's roads, this one is barely passable. Our venerable land cruiser lurches across dry creek beds and deep ruts, and I loosen my bones to roll with it as I've learned to do. This trip has been months in the planning, but a cancelled flight out of Moresby very nearly blew it all to bits. Yet here I am, riding shotgun with the man I've come so far to see, David Kulimbau. He's working the gears hard as he keeps up a running commentary on the conditions unfolding around us. From here all the way up to the big bush up there, there is no water. The PNG highlands of history and imagination are green and lush. But today this rugged landscape is parched and pale. It's mid-September 2022 and the rainy season is a good month overdue. There's been uh, seven months dry weather all the little creeks all dried up and uh, hardly we cannot plant any food at all. Clouds of smoke settle in the folds between the jagged peaks. As their crops fail, people are burning the bush here to plant more food and to clear space to build houses for their children and grandchildren. You will see all dried completely and people are dying. Often when we think about climate impacts in the Pacific, we think about people losing their homes to sea level rise. But way up here, some 1,600 metres above sea level, communities are just as whacked as the seasons shift and their crops wilt. With fertile soils and plentiful, reliable rains, people in these parts haven't historically really had to worry so much about preserving food. But it's a different story now. Most people living in Papua New Guinea don't have a fridge at home because we don't have water supply or power supply to have fridge in the house. The only food that we can always get fresh one come out of is from the land that we planted. We highly dependent on. David and his wife Anna are agricultural specialists and with the support of a handful of Australian and Kiwi scientists and a drip feed of grants, They've spent 30 years working in villages right across the highlands, teaching people how to get the most out of their food gardens. In a drought like the one I'm witnessing, this is a question of survival. We are going to look at my water and my garden and how I used to help communities. David knows all too well what is coming. He witnessed the catastrophic 1997-98 El Nino when frosts and drought left nearly 40% of rural villages suffering extreme food shortages. Then in 2015-16, 
it came again, leaving a death toll presumed in the thousands. The alarm was sounded early by experts, but the response to that crisis, notably from Australia, was later damned as too little, too late. David's work is all about bringing together Indigenous knowledge and the latest science to prepare communities for the next El Nino. There we're coming to the place where we're going to stay and my area now, Joe. David and Anna's garden materialises like a lush oasis. The air pulses with brilliant blue flashes of the swallowtail butterfly, Papilio Ulysses. And there's a welcome party waiting. Great to meet you. Nice to see you. Are you all students? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. The students have come along to look at David and Anna's enterprise with their lecturer, Dr Lily Saar. She's a science communication specialist whose focus is on social change and sustainability. In practice, she operates as a kind of conduit connecting villagers, scientists, policymakers and leaders to tackle issues like food security, poverty and, inevitably, changing climate. I'm Lily, yeah, Lily Sa. I'm with the University of Goroka. I work with farmers, seeing how best knowledge from research centres can be incorporated with their own local knowledge so that they have food to eat. There is food and nutritional security being addressed, but at the same time they have income, income for other things like medicine and school fees. Lily works with David and Anna in a program supported by the Australian Centre for Agricultural Research. She says that David's played a really big role in teaching people how to grow their crops and care for their livestock sustainably. People, mostly women, come to this garden every day to learn, and there are half a dozen here today. David has got this place all planned. He's got things here that will still grow sun or rain. <laughs> Nothing's growing without a reason. <laughs> what they learn here isn't just about growing food in a changing climate. They're also learning techniques to safely preserve food that will sustain them through long periods of drought when they lose not just their kitchen supplies but their incomes as well. It's usual that a lot of people don't dry food because in PNG we think that we have the soil, we have the weather and, you know, we just have abundance. There's really no need to dry food. But David and Anna have learned you have to preserve food for times when you're not able to grow. It's not a big space. It's like a backyard garden. But because of how they garden, they've actually been able to have what you can see now. Yeah. Okay, so let me try to describe this cornucopia. There are half a dozen varieties of beans and yams. And of course, there's cow cow, sweet potato, the staple food of two thirds of Papua New Guineans. There are also a couple of the new drought resistant varieties here. And then there's breadfruit, forest figs, and quite a few things I don't really recognise. So this man's peeling away the leaves mm-hmm. in it. So it looks like a spring onion, like a, a long grass. stalk. Yeah. Like a lemongrass. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's sweet? Good. Yeah, it's good. good. Nice. Yeah. You want to taste? Yeah, I'll have a taste. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Good for pig. Good for two pigs. Yeah, about <laughs> for abundance. Okay, there are some more familiar specimens, but they're grown with skills that rather put my best backyard efforts to shame. And lastly, I think I recognise a tomato. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I bought one of these one kina tomato at the market, and then I make a nursery 
using only one tomato seed, then you will see a lot of them growing and I will have more than what I have planted. The tomatoes are very good for selling in the market and get bits and pieces of money for the family support. And you've generated that all from one one kina tomato? Yes, one 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 kina tomato. So, several years of harvest and income out of a 40 cent investment. And then there are the indigenous plants gathered from the forests. That's the one they use. Pandanus. Pandanus. The leaves are used for mats, Mm -hmm. for people to sit and sleep on. The seed or the nut is used for traditional cooking. Such times like this, this is what keeps people going. Because it doesn't go bad. They beat it up, they dry it, they keep it. That's what keeps the village people going. So the indigenous crops hold up very well, some of them. David's wife and collaborator, Anna, is explaining her techniques for storing some of what's grown here. Lily helps out with the translation. So her corn seeds she preserved, she can actually dry them. They stay for a long time, can stay more than one year if it's dried well. She takes it when she wants to prepare a meal, puts it in water, soaks it, so it gets softer for them to eat. David jumps in to walk us through the painstaking steps for preserving another vital crop, cassava. I know cassava pretty well from reporting in Africa, where it can be found sprouting from the driest and poorest of soils right across the sub-Sahara. Cassava is critical to global food security. It feeds an estimated one billion people across Africa, Latin America, Asia and the Pacific. The water boils up very fast and then we dip it into the hot water and then after three minutes, take it out of the pot and then we put it out for dry. Because of its tolerance of high temperatures and drought, cassava is expected to become even more critical as global heating accelerates. But it comes with a catch. If it's not processed carefully, it can be toxic. There's a clue in the whiff of marzipan almond that you might catch cutting into the flesh of the tuber. Yes, that's cyanide. Until we break it like this, and then when you hear that sound, this means that it is well dried. Then we keep this one for three, four, five years, they can be there. Ah. Yeah. That one is 10 years old. Yeah. 10 years old? Okay. So the other piece that David was explaining and the one we heard him snap in his hands, they look like chips, potato chips. There's dried, thin slices of cassava plant. Okay, that's a wild breadfruit over there, the green leaf. Uh And that's the tree up there. You can see it. Okay, okay. On a hot weather like this, where everything's dry, that can go dry. So they go back to the bush to bring it as long as the forest is still there. And that's the catch. (laughs) Yes, that's the catch. Okay. Papua New Guinea's forests are vanishing. Since 2000, it's lost about 1.2 million hectares of tree cover. In some places, especially around the coasts, whole forests are being stolen by illegal loggers and they're cleared for oil palm plantations and for mining projects. But here in the Bina district, mostly the trees are cut and burned to feed and house the growing population. Lily and David work constantly urging people to preserve these precious forests. We still go back to the forests because when the cultivated crops are dry, The forests are there, and it's so important to maintain those forests because that's the food source for people here. Mm. But the forests are still 
owned by people. So if the landowners preserve the forest, they can have a lot of these forest foods to eat from in times like this. So you see, they keep referring to their forest food. Yeah. It's still the storehouse of food. Yeah. And yet I imagine here, as in all over Papua New Guinea, people that are in need can often be under pressure to sell their forest to loggers and that storehouse is then gone forever. Exactly. Population increase, there's pressure on the land. So people are selling the natural resources that will look after them when it's extreme climatic conditions like this, like what we're experiencing in Bena now. If they had the forest, they go back to it. But you can see on the hills now, it's grassland. David and Anna take me on a tour around their little plot of land and it's time to meet some of the livestock. Our first stop is a wooden pen with a pink snout expectantly poking over the top rung. We bought this small piglet with 200 kina uh-huh. and when it grows bigger we can kill for our son's graduation. When does your son graduate? <laughs> uh, on end of three years' time. Three years' time. Yeah. All right, Piggy, you've got three years. Enjoy them. And now, the rabbit house. Oh, hello. So there's one, two, three, four. David has bred rabbits for decades for meat and for the market. Today, there are just two cherished breeding pairs left in the hutch, huge white bunnies that snuggle into his arms as he gently strokes their long ears. At the moment, I haven't done any breedings due to climate changes and there's not enough heat for me to feed the rabbits. Oh, OK. But when it is rain, I will make sure to breed more. One big thing about rabbit is to collect manure and put them in the garden. This is all part of the integrated, sustainable farming methodology that's at the heart of the work David and Anna do with their little NGO which is called the Community Development Workers Association. I encourage my farmers, women farmers especially, not to apply any chemical into their garden. I only tell them to use manure, like rabbit manure, pig manure, goat manure, chicken manure, because they produce the sustainability of the land for a long time. So it's healthier for the soil and for the people, but also it doesn't cost you anything. Yes, yes, mm. it doesn't cost me anything at all mm. because I collected from my own animals. Mm. The increasing of the price of all the chemicals in the store is too expensive. Mm. So we want to encourage our villages and the farmers to make use of animal manure which they have in the village. So a lot of work that we've done in integrating the indigenous know-how of how farming's been done. David has really played a big role in it, looking at how people are still able to work without expensive fertilizers, that you can still have a sustainable practice. You can still have an integrated system of agriculture where you have animals and crops. But as resourceful and thrifty as David and Anna are, their best efforts won't be enough as future droughts become longer and harsher. Another devastating El Nino event is inevitable. They're natural phenomenon. But in a climate-changed world, they occur more frequently and become more intense. With Lily's help, the couple tries to start conversations on the ground here around setting up irrigation systems but it's a difficult and sometimes dangerous conversation. 
irrigation is a big issue around here. Yeah. If irrigation pipes are done and it's lying across different people's land, we have issues. That project's been looking at what's the best way to still grow the crop using the water that's available. And you use the term social issues as a result, but let's talk Turkey. This is about conflict yeah. and potentially really bad conflict between yeah. people because of their desperation. Yeah. Exactly, because if you have the irrigation system across two different landowners, mm-hmm. both have to agree. If not, one will get upset and damage the pipes. So those further down don't have any water. So there are social issues to deal with. Right across PNG, from the coast to the highlands, the impacts of climate change are already playing out. Communities have initiated, out of urgent necessity, their own responses. This is a formidable task when some 87% of the population live on ancestral, customary land and rely on fishing, horticulture and hunting for subsistence and for income. There are no easements to run services like irrigation pipes over customary land. As conditions become desperate, the question of who gets access to water and how will be defining. Tanks will not last. You need an irrigation system. But irrigation system comes with responsibility. What do you do with the number of people whose land the pipes are lying across, you know, are you going to pay them, you know, what are you going to do with them? So the farmers we've been working with in the project, that's been the main issue. The idea now is for those who have land and are part of the project, can we do a well so that the pipes are not lying across different lands? And this is where Lily is pushing for the government and policymakers to step up, to start thinking about how they can work with Highland communities to transition to a reality very different from the one their tambuna, their ancestors, knew. They're resilient people. Mm. These people work. They Mm. work. And they're surviving. But it'll make a lot of difference if the provincial, national policymakers see what they can do with water. Water is the biggest issue. They'll grow Mm. anything. That's their land. They'll grow. They know how to farm. Give them the water. (laughs) In the years since my visit... David has sent me regular updates, including detailed daily readings from his rain gauge. The drought I saw has eased off for a while, but now things are dry again. And from all over PNG, reports are coming in. There's an El Nino brewing, and it's biting already. Around Garoka, people are planting drought-resistant crops, and they're buying rice. The impacts of drought in these communities are profound. It's not just about the loss of crops, hunger and malnutrition. Without enough water to wash, diseases spread. Girls are pulled out of class to find and carry water over long distances. Schools close, and so do the health facilities. Is this the next big one? The warnings from the scientific consensus are unequivocal. These cycles will become more frequent and more ferocious. Preparing for this reality has to be about more than emergency responses when a situation spirals into a recognised disaster. It has to support and empower local ownership and local leadership of programs that can prevent the worst case scenarios playing out. Land is important. You know, David always ensures that he pushes that, yeah. that you've got to look after the land because land is your life. Mm.
And so all that he's doing here and the displaces and all the work he's done, that's all to do with protecting the land. You protect the land, it'll look after you. Your production of whatever food you're growing will increase. People can learn better the new techniques of maybe application of fertilizers and all, how they could learn better from research and then also use the indigenous methods that are going to be helping them through this very difficult time. That report in Papua New Guinea was by Joe Chandler, production by Shelby Trainor. A reminder, like several features on RN from the Pacific, on how much science is being applied there and how many deep problems there are to solve urgently.